0: Ben Stewart is the executive director of Uncharted International. He's married to his lovely wife, wife, Kathy. They have two children, Eli and Olivia, who are 13 and 11, respectively. Ben has pastored in a number of different capacities in a number of different churches. But right now, as I said, he is the executive director of Uncharted International. And you are in for a treat to hear from Ben. Would you please show Ben Stewart your appreciation? (laughs) All right, well, hey, thank you so much, and it really is an honor to be here this morning. Um, it's, it's really wonderful. One of the unique opportunities that I have being here in Evansville is to get to know a lot of different uh, pastors and, and their families, and I just have to say here for a second, you guys are being led by a really great man of God who is married to a wonderful woman, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah, you know that. You know that. Great team. Um, So I do, I want to say thanks to Jeff, and I mean this sincerely, and to Nathaniel and to the other team members. I don't take it lightly uh, to be here this morning in this capacity, uh, so thank you for that. And I also know there's the feeling out there sometimes, like when the guest speaker shows up, like, oh, I came on that Sunday. Um, So let me just take a second here and, and give you a little context for who I am. Jeff mentioned some of it um married to Kathy we've been married for 16 years they were here this morning my family in the first service so I'm sorry you missed them um it's been a it's been a great we don't have a perfect marriage because I'm part of it but we have a great marriage we're a lot of, we have a lot of fun together we're good buddies uh Kathy and I love hanging out and we love our two kids they're a lot of fun um Eli's 13 and Olivia they're both in middle school so pray for me um and then uh, we moved from Colorado last year to Evansville, Indiana. So we, we decided one day we woke up and we were like, you know what? These mountains, they're, they're boring. They're mundane. This is ridiculous. Like the cornfields are calling us. So, um, so we moved to Indiana. Um, but, no, really, we came here because God was moving us into this really cool opportunity to help lead uncharted international uncharted i 'll talk more about it in a second, but uh, uncharted, we have this this sort of singular purpose and vision of we want to help people do brave things to advance god 's kingdom all over the world. Uh, man, at the end of the day, more than being a husband, more than being a dad, uh, more than being a leader of, of a ministry i 'm a person who strongly believes and experiences in my own life that Jesus Christ is the of the world, and so um, we're passionate at Uncharted of helping come alongside people, helping come alongside churches, and saying, how can we help you not settle? How can we help you break out of status quo, out of a marginalized version of following Jesus, and live to go boldly? Man, we love, we say that all the time at Uncharted. Let's go boldly in our faith, and let's help bring the gospel to the places that aren't yet reached, and I'll talk more about that. So that's what brought us from Colorado to here. And um, if you know Betsy Hopkins, she uh, uh, hangs out here with you guys. She's part of your community, and she's on our staff, and I love Betsy. If you don't know Betsy, you must be from out of town because everybody in Evansville knows Betsy Hopkins. So she's great and uh, really thankful to be part of your guys' community here this morning. And I want to I talk this morning about this idea that when the gospel arrives, uh, whole cultures and 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 families and systems are changed. And I want to look at it through this lens, this statement of of a of a statement that actually you guys have something very close to this and Pastor Jeff will talk about it at the very end. It's a statement that a friend of mine uses and the statement is change one thing and everything changes. Change one thing and everything changes. Let me give you just a silly illustration of this. So I haven't talked about another member of our family yet, um, but I grew up and, and just hating animals I hate animals I hate pets especially which is really odd because my brother is a veterinarian okay so he got all of it I got none of it um, just I don't I don't like animals pets especially cats cats are like the spawn of Satan to me all right just and I've just offended every cat lover I'm sorry but it's true I just I'm not a cat person and even dogs like I had 57 reasons why not to have a pet dog okay like they shed everywhere so your clothes get nasty and they bark all the time and they sniff you and we places, and it's just, it's just bad. So, so not a pet guy, and then my kids are getting older, and they start wearing me down. And, and, you know, Olivia especially, like your cute little daughter, you know, and she starts wearing me down. And so last year, we got Archie. Here's Archie. We got a golden doodle puppy. Yeah, pretty cute, isn't he? Well, let me tell you, Change one thing, and everything changes let me my my morning routine pre archie was awesome i mean I, I would I would get up i 'd have my cup of coffee i would talk to kathy i 'd hang out with jesus i 'd go work out at bob 's gym I would come home, get ready, go to work. It was great. And then we got Archie. And now I find myself waking up at, you know, too early in the morning and having to follow Archie while I give him a walk, picking up his poop, which it's like, what what has happened to our society that we as the human beings are doing that? You, did you know you can actually go to PetSmart? Like I find myself at PetSmart in the aisles now, picking out what scented cleanup bags I want to buy, right? Like what's happened to me? So Archie is now a member of our family, and honestly, guess, guess who Archie loves the most? Me. Yep, yep. So it's, this is a silly illustration of you change one thing, and everything changes. Now, while this is sort of a ridiculous way of saying it, I could not think of a better way to describe what happens, what happens when the gospel arrives, What happens when the gospel arrives in a community? What happens when the gospel arrives in a marriage? What happens when the gospel arrives in relationships and in a culture? It changes everything. Now, very quickly, just so we're on the same page about when I say the gospel, what am I talking about? There's a lot of wonderful, beautiful ways to describe the gospel. So I just want to give you a few words. This is going to take only a second That when you hear me talk about when the gospel arrives, what are we talking about? What is the gospel? The gospel is the beautiful, true life story of God's pursuit and God's provision. The gospel is this beautiful, true life story of God's pursuit and God's provision. It's beautiful because it's a story about forgiveness It's a story about redeeming and restoring. It's a story about healing. It's a story about purpose. It's a story about fulfillment. It's a story about rest and peace. It's a beautiful story, the gospel. But it's also a true story. It's a story that's not just um, relevant and and practical from years ago, but it's true today. It's true not just in theory, but it's true tangibly and practically in a reality for you the gospel is a story, it's a reality, it's a truth that is true in your life. It's not just some concept that's out there that maybe is real, maybe is not, who knows? It's a beautiful story, it's a true story of God's pursuit. This is one of the things, this is one of the things that causes Christianity to stand out from among other religions more than anything else. In every other religion, it's all about how does humanity pursue God? How does humanity find its way back to God? Christianity is the only thought system that says God pursues his creation. That in Genesis chapters one through three, you see uh, creation is designed by God to be at peace and rest with him. And in our arrogance and in our rebellion and our pride, we shake our fist in the face of God. We say, no, thank you very much. We reject God. We turn our back on God. We sin against God. We are broken from God. But in that moment... When God could have started over, when God could have turned his back on us, he didn't. In that moment, God starts to pursue humanity. God starts to pursue creation, to bring us back into restoration and rest with him. But it's a story, the gospel is not only a beautiful story that's true about God's provision, but it's also a story of God's Uh, God's pursuit. It's also a story of God's provision. That he knows... He knows that there is no good thing. There is no list long enough that we could keep. There is no righteous act that we can do in and of ourselves to be restored to him. So he provides us with the way back to himself, back into relationship with him, back into being and doing the very thing that we were created and designed to do, which is be in relationship with him. He provides us that way through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, he he knows you don't have what it takes. You can keep trying if you want. You can be as religious as you want, but you don't have what it takes. So I'm going to provide for you the way. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the hero of the gospel story. Jesus Christ is the hero of the gospel story because he provides for us. He provides for you the chance to come back into relationship with God and be who it is that God designed you to be in the first place. So friends, this morning when we talk about when the gospel arrives, this is what I want you to hear in your mind. Oh yeah, it's this beautiful story about forgiveness and redemption and and things being healed and it's, it's a story about how God pursues me like there's no other God that does that and it's a story about how God provides for me. I don't have to provide for myself. I don't have to work this. I don't have to earn this. It's by grace. He provides for me. It's this true story. It's a true story. It's for me. It's for here. It's for today. So when we talk about the gospel arriving for the next several minutes, that's what I want you to hear in your mind as I say that story. Because there's two things that we're going to see happen. Well, there's lots of things. But two two things this morning we're going to see happen when the gospel arrives. Okay? So we're going to be hanging out in Acts chapter 19, predominantly. We're going to be looking at what happens when the, when the gospel arrives, okay? So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19 in your Bibles, or you can turn there on your phone or your iPad or whatever you do, and uh, we're going to be hanging out in Acts chapter 19. And while you're turning there, God, I just want to ask that you continue to speak to your sons and daughters. Thank you for the sweet time of worship. Man, it's so good. It is awesome, like Jeff said, to just like worship you, celebrate you, be excited about who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. So I pray that you would continue to speak. Would you take me out of this equation? Would you open minds, soften hearts? And will we hear from you? In your name, amen. Acts chapter 19. Now, the book of Acts is this really great book that talks about what happens when the gospel starts showing up in different places. Up to this point in the history of the church, in the history of Christianity, um, Christianity has mostly, like, hung out in this one area, the nation and the people of Israel. Now, what's happening in the book of Acts is people are starting to go out. What we would call missionaries. People are starting to go out and to bring the gospel into new places. And the book of Acts follows different key characters. One of whom, especially in the second half of the book of Acts, is the apostle Paul. And we see Paul's journeys and different people who kind of come in and out of his story. And we see how God uses them to bring the gospel into different places and cities and regions. And we're going to pick up in the middle of one of those in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus. Paul has been living there for about two years. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been discipling people. And now we start to see what happens as the gospel has sort of taken root in this community. And the first thing we realize is that culture. When the gospel arrives, culture is impacted. When the gospel arrives, Culture is impacted. Listen to this story. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. And about that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. The way is another name for Christianity during this time. So this big disturbance gets stirred up and starts... As a result of Christianity, the gospel. For a certain man, verse 24, named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen of similar trades. And he said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole continent of Asia, this Paul, this missionary, has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis herself be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the, and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord to the theater, and its story goes on and on. And what's happening here is that in Ephesians, uh, in, in the city of Ephesus, but really the whole continent of Asia, the world sort of at large, worshipped many gods, among whom, and sort of at the top escalon of this, of the god list, was Artemis. And Artemis, among other things, was worshipped as the goddess of fertility. And so you have this whole city, this whole community, really this whole continent. But in in Ephesus, you have this whole city that has given themselves to the worship, to the following, and to the believing in this false goddess, Artemis. But then enters the way. This, This crazy movement of people. Then enters the message of the gospel and culture begins to change we're going to look at just a couple little things about how the culture begins to change first of all the gospel the gospel begins changing the culture by threatening the cultural religious norms so here what's happening as the way, as Christianity, as the gospel starts to arrive in this community, in the city of Ephesus, you have this city filled with people who religiously are used to going to this temple. This temple was the biggest temple known at that time. And they would come into this temple and they would worship Artemis. And this was their religion. This is what they would flow their day around. This is what they would flow their, their week and their calendar around it was the celebration of Artemis. This is what they would give their money to. This is what they would sacrifice to literally and Figuratively. And so when the gospel arrives, and it says in verse 26, Demetrius says, And you see and here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people. When the gospel arrives in a community, it threatens the established cultural religious norm. When God uses movements like Uncharted to go into countries like Myanmar that are over 90% Buddhist in their religion and the gospel arrives in those places, it challenges the cultural religious norm. When God uses organizations like Uncharted to go to Central Asia in the countries that are 99% Islamic. And the gospel arrives, it starts to challenge the cultural religious norm of Islam. When the culture, when the gospel arrives in cultures like Evansville, it begins to challenge the cultural religious norms of materialism, of religiosity of comfort when the gospel arrives it changes a culture because it disrupts it disrupts the religious norm but we also see that when the gospel arrives culture is impacted not only that it threatens the cultural religious norm but it also changes the moral landscape it changes the moral landscape so at the time of this event, at the time of this uprising, um, not only are people just normally worshiping this goddess Artemis, but there's actually a festival going on, the festival of Artemisia. And this festival, you guys, okay, so like you're all really, we're, we're all really proud of our of our uh, fall festival, right? Okay, like our our fried brains and and like really weird things, okay. This, this festival makes the fall festival look like child's play, all right? This festival, millions of people coming into the city. Millions of people coming into the city to, to worship in a variety of ways the goddess of, Artem- uh, of Artemis. And remember that mostly what she's known for is the goddess of fertility, so the workers, the staff at the temple are prostitutes. So the debauchery, the level of debauchery, of moral, of, of moral uh, or immorality, that's a word. Uh, the word. The, the level of immorality and debauchery that's taking place during this festival is just off the charts. But then enter the gospel. But then enter the way. And all of a sudden, it's completely changing the moral landscape. Not just because the gospel is addressing behaviors, but because it's changing identities. And we'll come back to that. So when the gospel arrives, culture is impacted in that the gospel was threatening cultural religious norms, and it was changing the moral landscape. Let me read to you a really cool example, current day example of this. This is from a friend of mine. He's a friend and mentor. He uh, led an organization called Youth for Christ. And uh, this is a story that just happened As part of his ministry. So there's a suburb in the city of Rotterdam in the Netherlands that a number of years ago was declared by the government a no go zone for the police. It was populated by Dutch Antilles refugees. The area had become so violent and out of control that it was unsafe for police to venture there alone or in small numbers. About a year after this declaration, two young men, Sepkin and Daniel, who worked with Youth for Christ in the Netherlands, approached their national director, Edward, with what seemed like a crazy idea. They told him that they had been praying about the situation in Rotterdam and felt that God was calling them to establish ministry in the Dutch Antalian community. They wanted to go into the no-go area and set up a youth center. As they began to explore the city and people group, they were told that Christians were not welcome, that Christians had visited in the area in the past and that all they had done was preach at us and told us we were going to hell and then left without helping the community in, a way that, in, a way, in any way at all. Now, undaunted by this disheartening news, Daniel and Sekin said that they were different. They were there to stay. In fact, they said that they would move into the area with their wives. They also made a promise to the community representatives that they would not preach. They said that they would simply serve the community in any way that they could. And that's exactly what they did. They were given the use of an old abandoned government building that was being used by crack dealers to cook cocaine. They cleaned up the building and set up a small youth center. The building, was cons- uh, the building was constantly vandalized. Threats of violence were common. But these young men and their wives persevered. After about two years, one of the local gang leaders came to them and said, he and some of his friends wanted to know more about this Jesus that they served. Setkin and Daniel told this young man that they would be happy to share more about Jesus and invited him to come to the youth center on Thursday evening. About 50 young people turned up, including the gang leader and 40 members of his gang. When Setkin and Daniel had finished sharing, the local gang leader who had requested the meeting jumped to his feet and addressing his gang members said, We need to do this. We need to give our lives to Jesus. Jesus. Now, Daniel tried to discourage them from taking this step because he thought they must have misunderstood what it means to follow Jesus. But they insisted that they all wanted to make a commitment to follow Jesus, declaring they knew exactly what they were doing. So that night, an Antillean gang leader and 40 members of his gang surrendered their lives to Jesus. The community was transformed. Community programs were developed that served single mothers, drug users, Illiterate young people and victims of rape and abuse. The crime rate in the area has gone down 70%. The police have assigned a full-time policewoman to work with Youth for Christ in serving and liaisoning with the local community leaders. It is now a safe place for anyone to enter the area, including the police and government workers. Friends, this is what happens to a community when the gospel arrives. It changes the culture. It changes the landscape. When the gospel arrives, everything changes. And I love this illustration because it shows you they didn't come in. The way that the gospel arrives and changes the culture is not when people pick up bullhorns and start yelling at people about how horrible they are and how they're going to go to hell. The way that the gospel arrives and changes a culture is not when we pick up signs and start picketing things. The way that the gospel arrives and starts changing culture is when we come into a community and we take this posture of how can I love you in a real and tangible way. How can I begin to demonstrate and declare to you who Jesus is in the love of who he is? How can I look for and, and pursue the betterment of this community? That's what these guys did, which led eventually to a whole gang coming to know Jesus. This is why I love your statement as a church. To bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond Through what? Through programs? No, but programs are great. Through ministries? No, but ministries are great. Ultimately, it's through a movement of people. That's called the church, capital C. It's through you. A movement of people who what? Who have been transformed by Jesus. That's when a culture changes. That's when a community is impacted. When as a church, you engage in helping organizations like Community One and saying quarterly we are going to commit ourselves as a body, our resources, our hands, our finances to change a family by providing a home for them. We're gonna engage at Lincoln High School because we care about the youth of this generation in our community because they're not the generation of the tomorrow, they're the generation of right now. And God wants to transform their lives as well. It's why churches like City Church engage in practical ways to demonstrate Jeremiah twenty nine. Jeremiah twenty nine, you have God's people, the Israelites, in captivity in Babylon. And the temptation would be to board up the to board up the windows, to lock the doors, to seclude yourself, to turn in. But God comes to his people and he says, No, no, no. No, I actually want you to seek the good. I want you to seek the good of the foreign land that you're in. I want you to use your hands to plant gardens and make things more beautiful than they already are. I want you to use your relationships to bring redemption. I want you to actually like marry your sons and your daughters off. I want you to use your homes for hospitality and welcoming people in. When the gospel arrives, culture is impacted. The last way we see culture impacted is that we see it changes the economic landscape. This is really, this is really cool and really interesting, I think. So we have this scene back in Acts chapter 19 where you have Demetrius You kind of feel bad for this guy because you hear the desperation in him. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith. So this guy's like a blue-collar worker. He's working hard to make these different idols and different trinkets out of silver. Who made silver shrines of Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. He gathered together with workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. In other words, if people are not, if, as long as people worship Artemis and they keep coming to our little booth, then they buy our little trinkets. And at the end of the day, our bottom line is good. But enter the gospel, and the gospel's changing everything, guys. It's disrupting our economic system because people are no longer buying the little idols that we make and they're no longer, because they're no longer worshiping this Artemis because they're worshiping another god. When the gospel arrives, even broken economic and political systems are redeemed. What would it look like? What would it look like for the gospel to arrive in Evansville in such a way where there was no more business for the strip clubs. Not because we picked up signs and picketed them, but because hearts were changed in men and women. Marriages were redeemed and restored. A definition and understanding of what love really is and sexuality really is, is completely renewed. So there's just no business anymore. There's a picture of me um, in Myanmar at the um, biggest city in Myanmar called Yangon. And I'm standing at what is, uh, I'm told, the biggest Buddhist temple in the whole world. And I'm the white guy, in case you couldn't tell. Um, I'm with 22 of our church planters. And we went to this temple, and we spent an hour and a half just walking around the temple praying. And and what's if if you've been to Myanmar if you've been here at all like if you, if if Betsy's wrangled you into one of our trips um, you'll know that there's four huge stairways go leading up to this temple to this point, point. and all along the stairways there are uh, there are people who are selling they have their little booths set up and they're selling trinkets for people to buy and then offer in this temple, so. If I'm a Buddhist, if I'm a worshiper of Buddha, I I walk up the stairs and I spend my money to buy a little trinket and I come into this place and I see the huge statue of Buddha and I kneel down and I offer what it is I just purchased. So what's happening to Demetrius here, it's like if the gospel arrived through these 22 church planters and all of a sudden this temple went out of business because all these Buddhists were following Jesus instead. When the gospel arrives, friends, culture is impacted. The second point that we see, though, is that when the gospel arrives, when the gospel arrives, people flourish. This one's fun. I love this one. People flourish. We begin to see that people uh, understand who they are and who, how God designed them to be and, to, and what he designed them to do. Um, all throughout Acts, uh, especially in, verse, in chapters like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and beyond, um, we see different characters in the story start to really come alive. For example... In Acts chapter eighteen, verses one through four, you have this this entrepreneurial couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And I don't know how old they were exactly, but they were friends with Paul. Uh, they never mention it; never mentions that they have kids. So I like to imagine this is like this entrepreneurial couple who, if you went down to the market at Haney's Corner, some some you know some first Friday, like their booth would be set up and they'd be selling all this really cool like handmade stuff, you know. But they've used their entrepreneurial skills to first further the movement and the and the work and the mission of the gospel. So you see like this young entrepreneurial couple coming alive. You see Silas and Timothy in chapters 18 verse 5 and all throughout the epistles and I like to think of these guys as like the, the crazy millennials, right? Like they're wearing skinny jeans and they've got their pants rolled just the right way and their hair is cut at like the perfect number one, you know, with a nice fade and they put beard oil in their beards because their beards are awesome and, uh, and then Paul kind of comes alongside these two young dudes who are just full with all this energy and passion for Jesus and he mentors them, and he unleashes them. He unleashes them. And then you have like whole churches and books of the Bible that are written as a result of these two young guys who are mobilized. They, they flourish as a result of the gospel in their life. And then you have uh, Crispus. In, in uh, chapter 18, you have, it says Crispus and his whole family. I like to think of Crispus as like the suburban family, you know? Like when you moved into the, the, the community, it's like, well, over there, you know, That's the Crispus family. There's a family that you want to be. It's like the Joneses, you know. But then Crispus and his whole family get saved. And later in 1 Corinthians, you see Paul talking about how he baptized Crispus. And it gives this idea that that Crispus has actually become like this significant leader in the church. That he's actually, he's got a voice of influence in what's taking place in the body of Christ. And then, then you have Apollos. Apollos is like this really old dude. Like Jeff, you know. Someone who's really... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, seriously, he's really old. And uh, uh, no, but Apollo's Apollo's is this is this guy who again. Uh, For all intents and purposes, it seems like he's single. Maybe not, but he is older, and and Paul, again, comes alongside of him. And in 1 Corinthians, you have Apollos being talked about as one of the pillars of the early church faith. So I just love how through all the gospel, or, or through all the book of Acts, you see these different people, different stages of life, different skill sets, whether you're young or old, whether you're business savvy and entrepreneurial or more ministry, and you have a great preaching, you're good at preaching and all that sort of stuff, that God uses these people, and they flourish as a result of the gospel arriving in their life. It's really beautiful. What does it look like for you in your life to flourish? Whether whether you're that you know skinny jean rolling millennial or the or the older person who's in your sunset season or you're that entrepreneurial spirit or you have that really great gifts of relationships or you have you know you're, you're this couple who you don't have kids and so you've got these advantages that. You know, like, what does it look like for you to flourish as the gospel arrives in your life? I want to give you a very quick story of a friend of mine. His name is Mally and uh, Malcolm. And uh, Mally is, is uh, I want you to hear his story because it's a really, though it's short, a really neat, powerful story of how when the gospel arrived in his life, he began to flourish. Okay, so Mally is speaking to us. He has a, He's an Irishman in Paris. So he has a pretty interesting accent, okay? Take a second and hear this story from Mally.
1: Greetings, Uncharted family. My name is Mally. When I first moved to Paris nine years ago, I was in a vortex of alcoholism and deep depression. Three years after that, I was in a forest near my home with a noose around my neck, ready to call it quits on my life. That's when God spoke to me on the ledge of that abyss and said, no this is not the way for you. He had other plans for me. That's what revelation and the subsequent arrival of the gospel in my life is when I truly started to flourish and develop a deep relationship with Lord Jesus. For me, in faith and going boldly means stepping outside the comfort zone it means seeking those in the margins. It means joining what God is already doing in our churches, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. So my encouragement for you today would be to go boldly, seek those who need to hear the gospel so they too can flourish.
0: So I don't know if you heard it in there, but I love, again, just the, po- the transforming power of the gospel. That it it can arrive in a person like Mally who, who was suicidal, who was depressed, who was in bondage to alcoholism and other substance use, abuse. A man who is literally on the verge of his life with a noose around his neck and in that moment the gospel arrives and changes everything. To the point where now, ten years later, Malley himself is a missionary in Paris, a place that only 0.03 percent of people know the name of Jesus, a place where there's only one church per every 35,000 people. Because the gospel arrived in Malley's life, he is flourishing as a follower of Jesus, and he's reaching more unreached people for the gospel. You see, friends, what happens when the gospel arrives and when people begin to flourish? It's not because it changes behavior. The goal of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the goal of God redeeming us and bringing him back to himself is not to change behavior, it's to change identity. That when the gospel arrives, it changes us, friends. It changes us from the inside out. It replaces our heart uh, from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that are soft and can receive who God is in the, His Spirit. It changes us from people who are dead into people who are alive, which we sang about. It changes us from people who are in bondage to sin into people who are free. It changes us from people who are slaves into people who are now called sons and daughters of the King. It changes us from people who have no hope, who have no future to now being a people who have purpose and fulfillment in relationship with the Father. It changes us from people who are hurting and filled with shame to people who are forgiven and cleansed and declared righteous. People, when the gospel arrives in our life, it change, we flourish, not because we follow a list of rules and we do good things and we have quiet times for 15 minutes every morning. Those are all fine. But the reason we flourish is not because of behavior change, but because when the gospel arrives, it changes who we are. That's what happens when the gospel arrives. Our identity is no longer, listen. Your identity is no longer defined by culture. Your value, your value as a human being is no longer determined by a certain group of people. It's determined by the God of this universe who loves you a whole lot more than you ever imagine. That's why we flourish when the gospel arrives. So, why does this matter? Like, really, who cares? (laughs) Why does this matter to us here this morning, Sunday the 27th in Evansville, Indiana? Why does this matter? I'll end with these two reasons why it matters. First, first reason why this matters. There are places, there are many places in this world where the gospel has not yet arrived. Did you know that there are over 3 billion people? There are over 3 billion people who have no access to the gospel. That's over 6,000 people groups. In the world, who have not heard the name of Jesus. This is why, friends, organizations like Uncharted need to exist. We need to exist because we are passionate about going to those unreached places. We are passionate about going to those people groups who have not yet heard the name of Jesus, where the gospel has not yet arrived, and helping bring the name and the person and the good news of Jesus to those people. Seeing those communities transformed, seeing those families healed, seeing those lives given purpose and forgiveness and redemption. That's why it matters. And look, I need to correct myself. It's not Uncharted's responsibility to do this. It's the church's responsibility to do this. The church, capital C, God says, you, I am the hope of the world. Jesus says, I am the hope of the world. You are the primary means through which that hope is demonstrated and declared. Really, Uncharted is meant just to come alongside churches like this and say, how can we help make it happen? To me, the greatest injustice... The greatest in human justice is the billions of people who do not have access to the gospel. Look, I am super passionate about the church taking seriously the injustice of human trafficking and responding to that. I am super passionate about the church responding to all those who are orphaned. I am super passionate about the injustice of the millions of people who do not have access to clean water. And Uncharted does a lot of things to respond to those injustices, but at the end of the day, we are doing a disservice to those people if we do not also take seriously, even more seriously, the greatest injustice of all, which is their lack of access, access to Jesus. What point is it, in the end, if we are giving them physical water But not introducing them to the living water. So this matters, friends. This matters because as the church, we need to take seriously how do we help bring the gospel and see the gospel arrive to the billions of people who don't yet have it. The last thing I'll say is that this matters because there are people here, there are people here to whom the gospel has not yet arrived. There are people in your classrooms, there are people in your workplaces, in the restaurants that you eat at on Friday nights, maybe even people in your families, to whom the gospel has not yet arrived. And they are what I like to call walking spiritual zombies. Because on the outside, it looks like they are fully alive, but in reality, they are completely dead. And hopeless because the gospel hasn't showed up yet. To take it a step further, maybe there are even some in here. Maybe there are even some in here this morning to whom the gospel has not yet arrived. Maybe for whatever reason, you've been resisting the gentle, persistent pursuit of the father. Maybe you've been resisting his love Maybe you've been resisting his grace and his forgiveness. Maybe you've been resisting his calling on your life. Man, this morning, if you hear nothing else, hear this. This morning is an invitation to you from the Father to allow his good news to arrive in your life. That you would be changed from the inside out. So, friends, my prayer for you, I'm going to pray over you. The band's going to come up. We're going to respond through worship and through giving. And my prayer for you is this, that you will continue to be known in this community. Man, I, lo- I love this, that you will, be conti- you will continue to be known in this community in Evansville as a church through whom our whole culture has changed. That God would use you as a people to radically affect and improve and bring life to the city of Evansville and beyond. But I'm also praying for you that you'll allow the gospel to arrive in your own heart. That you will remember this morning there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you'll remember this morning that you are a new creation. And that you are at peace with God when you are found in him. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the heart of who you are and your good news. That you pursued us. That you didn't require us to live up to some impossible expectation. But provided a way for us to be restored to you. I thank you for the time this morning with my brothers and sisters to be challenged from your word. And I pray that all of us, myself especially, would take this seriously, Lord. That through our lives, through the words we speak, through the actions we live out, that the gospel would arrive in this community. That you'd use this church to bring the gospel here and literally around the world.